on TV, online, and on your smartphone. This is Ticken News. This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Hi, I'm Chris Judd and this is Talkie Book and today we're very lucky to be joined by Scott Rundell from Mutual Limited. Scott, thanks very much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Now maybe before we get into a, a bit of a macro talk today, tell us a little bit about Mutual Limited mm -hmm. and, and how you guys look to invest. Uh, Mutual Limited uh, has two lines to the business. We have uh, four retail funds, which uh, start off with a term deposit fund all the way up to a high yield fund, um, which is roughly around half of our funds under management. And then the other half is a selection of high net worth individuals, APRA regulated uh, entities that need their capital managed and so on and so forth. So all up, we're just under three billion under management and we focus specifically on debt products or contractual obligations, mainly public. We don't really look at the private loan space. Um, for the liquidity um, elements there, and uh, yeah, no equities, and all about stability, safety, security in a rising interest rate environment or a stable interest rate environment. And you referred to internally as the CIO. I mm -hmm. referred to you as the macro <laughs> macro guru. Thank you. Um, in terms of our viewership, I think what's on the forefront of everyone's mind is local inflation and interest rates. Mm -hmm. How are you seeing those markets, and and what do you think's next for for Aussie interest rates in particular? Um, I mean, the inflation story is an evolving one. Um, it is trending lower. Um, that has to happen with the base effect. Um, but as the RBA has pointed out, there's two core components to inflation, and one particular component is causing concern is services inflation, uh, which is still rising uh, while goods inflation is falling. That, in turn, was more driven by the supply chain imbalances caused by COVID. Um, the services element, the financials, insurance, um, tourism, all, a lot of it around the imbalances caused by labour and mobility are still sort of um, ticking along and a, a bit hard to gauge. And you add to that the rebound in house prices, which, um, which causes another concern for the, uh, the RBA on the grounds that you know, people feel a bit more um, enthused or confident to spend money when their houses are going up. So it's all about trying to bring back aggregate demand so inflation's under control. Um, the last print was 6%, targets you know, top of 3%. Um, at this stage, they're forecasting that to be reached by late 2025, which is realistically quite a long way mm. away. Um, so in that environment, where are interest rates? Um, obviously, for the last two meetings, the RBA's left rates at 4.1. Uh, consensus, I think, has one more rate hike in the cycle, um, which is a camp I'm currently in. It does move around a bit, though, um, because the data is so fluid. Um, today, we had wages data came in under expectations, uh, flat to the prior qu uh, quarter and year. So um, it's a moving feast and it's a difficult one to, uh, to judge. But I think regardless of whether we're at the peak cycle now, um, I think the market has increasingly come to the conclusion, and I think rightly, that we're going to stay relatively elevated for a period of time because it is going to take a while for inflation to get back to target. And you mentioned Aussie house prices before that have showed surprising strength recently. Mm -hmm. um, albeit on relatively thin volumes. Yep. We got told housing Armageddon was coming as yep. the fixed rate mortgage cliff, mm -hmm. uh, which we were due to be entering sort of about now, the, yep. the finality of that, the fixed rate mm -hmm. mortgages that, that got entered into during COVID. Mm -hmm. 
What are you hearing and seeing in the Aussie housing market and what do you think comes next? I think when you look at house prices, and I think I was on this show when we were talking about the 20 to 30% decline that a lot of um, henny-penny types were sort of signalling. Um, I think it's important to point out that realistically we've never really had a peak to trough any greater than 10% and that's roughly what we saw this time around. And what's changed that environment is, you know, we're seeing the cost of building a house is yeah. quite high. Uh, so building approvals are falling. We're seeing an influx of immigration as those imbalances re, 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 um, sort themselves out post COVID. So you know, 300, 400,000 people coming to the country need, to, need somewhere to live. Rents are up. Uh, year, uh, rental yields are, are near historical high, vacancies are low. And those dynamics are very supportive historically of house prices. And that's what we're starting to see. Um, you talked about uh, supply. Really, if you don't need to sell, you don't sell. Mm. Uh, and I think in this environment, uh, we're in that environment where there's a supply-demand imbalance. New supply is not really coming through. Um, yes, we've seen some construction companies go under, but they're relatively small, one or two big ones. Um, but uh, I don't think tradies are really struggling. I mean, it's, you try and get a tradie to your house these days, it takes three or four weeks to get someone in. So I think there's still a lot of demand there. Um, and the renovation market's probably a bit more active than, say, the, the new build market. And that's the Aussie market. Talk me through, say, the US inflation market and the, the numbers you're seeing over there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, US inflation is coming off a lot more aggressively than, than the local market. It peaked higher, um, but it's coming off a lot higher uh, quickly. Um, the US market's a little bit different on the housing front. And, and if you look at, say, the US inflation component versus the Australian inflation component, and US property market's quite different to ours again. So US borrowers are quite incentivized to have a very high loan-to-value ratio because of the tax benefits. Uh, their interest payments are tax deductible. If they make a profit on their house, they're taxed on it. Whereas here, we're the other way around for our primary residents. We're incentivized to have a lower loan to value ratio. So that influences the whole inflation dynamic. Also within the inflation component on housing, uh, there is sort of an implied rental number, you know, what the rental equivalent is of you owning your own house. Whereas here, we don't have that. We have more, all right, what's the actual rent for those who rent? Um, and then there's the other costs of, uh, of housing, so new builds uh, and the like. So it's different dynamics, both running pretty aggressively around 7 or 8%. So both showing growth in, in prices. And if you sort of chart US month-on-month you know, -month house price growth versus ours, it's reasonably highly correlated, believe it or not. The big difference between uh, interest rates in the US, because I speak to people and they say, well, we've got to go a lot higher with our rates because look at where the US, yep. US are. Yep. If you look at... US homeowners, mm -hmm. the vast majority of them are in 30-year fixed loans yep. who aren't being touched at all by these rate rises. If anything, they can put surplus cash in money market fund and yep. use that to pay down their mortgage for principal uh, and interest. Do you yep. want to just maybe explain just how high a percentage of US homeowners have fixed rate mortgages yeah. and why the, the, um, the reaction function of rate rises may not be as strong in the US yeah, that's as, a good as point. it can be here? That's a very good point. And, and the, the RBA does have that ability and the RBA increases rates and then within 60 to 90 days your, your mortgage goes up typically. Um, and in the US, to your point, 95% of Americans have their mortgages fixed for 30 years on average. Which wasn't the case in the GFC, was it? It's much higher than the, there was a chunk, but it yeah. wasn't as high as this in the GFC, was it? No, but it, it, the other element with the GFC driven was the regards to in Australia when you have a mortgage, it's full recourse. Yeah. Uh, the American system, we've heard the story, jingle mail and, and ninja loans, no, no income, no jobs, no, no problem sort of thing. So in those instances when the property bubble did collapse or did explode, um, a lot of people just threw the keys back. Um, whereas here you fight tooth and nail to keep your house. Um, 
so that's why the banking dynamics is different as well. So um, yeah, so 95% fixed, 30 years, and that can be an, an impediment to turning over stock as well, because if you're locked in, in the last two or three years at a really beautiful rate, you're probably less inclined to, to sell out because you, you, if you refinance, you're going to be refinancing at a higher rate. Whereas here, uh, the latest statistics were about 30% fixed and only for three years on average, if that. So, um, and the mortgage cliff is coming off, as, as you alluded to. Um, most of the signaling from the banks is that they're not seeing any material deterioration in those loans versus, say, the broader book. Um, and I think that's maybe a reflection of the type of people who did lock in. Um, you could suggest that they were more financially savvy, a bit more educated, a bit more financial resources and utilise the circumstances to fix their loan in so that when they do come off, it's not as big a shock for them and they expect that it coming. And the banks have been very good at telegraphing and signalling to these borrowers, hey, your mortgage is about to change. Um, so there shouldn't be any surprises. We'll dig in a bit more to the US data when we come back. We'll have more talkie book for you right after this short break. On TV, online and on your smartphone, this is Ticker News. This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. You're watching Talk Your Book and we've got Scott Rundell from Mutual Limited. Scott, we're talking about US inflation numbers and housing market. You mentioned that US inflation is trending down strongly, as it is in Australia. Um, is it too early for Jerome Powell in the US to do a victory dance around inflation? <laughs> um, I think it is. Uh, I think when you look at the, the journey we had to get to this position with regards to inflation, we had a lot of shocks to the system that we really haven't had before. So let's um, utilise the, the butterfly effect. We're still learning and still sort of seeing how these the, the ramifications of the COVID and the economic lockdown and, and, and the, the imbalances it caused with regards to capital mobility, labour mobility. Um, so I think I wouldn't be doing the victory dance, not that I think the, the, the Fed board doing much dancing. But, <laughs> uh, um, but I think, yeah, and the other element, we're starting to see increasingly or potential flare-ups is energy again. Yeah. We're seeing oil prices up over 20% in the last few weeks. Um, we're seeing signs of gas prices in Europe. Uh, obviously, the situation in Ukraine hasn't really improved, if, if anything's getting worse. So heading into the European winter, gas prices going up. Uh, is a threat to European inflation at least, which um, has sort of broader ramifications. And then we're seeing more locally the, the gas workers striking for higher wages and causing some potential supply disruption. So I think there's still some components that can cause some flare-ups. And I would suggest that the final, so while we've, the US has gone from say 9% down to sort of 3.5% range, um, targeting their 2%, I think that final 1% could really take a while to come through and be that really sticky uh, element. Now, their labour market is still showing signs of, of strength. Wages are still very strong. Um, the consumer is still spending. Um, so I think there's a lot of componentry within the financial plumbing of the world that has changed since the last time we had an inflationary cycle. Uh, and I'm the first to say there's a lot of complexities there uh, in capital movements that just really hard to judge and gauge. You know, from the GFC to now, we've seen the Fed balance sheet reach $9 trillion. It's still late in a bit. Mm. What does that do? Uh, interest rates historically are still very low. 
um, when you look at where it was pre-GFC and so on. So it's too soon to, to do the dance. Do you look at interest payments that they're now going to be paying on, on newly issued bonds and, and T-bills and yep. charging towards a trillion bucks a year? Yep. And looking at their deficits, which mm. is is it eight percent of GDP now? Sounds about right. And we're not in even in, in a recessionary environment. Yeah. Do you look at that and think, gee, that that feels unsustainable? Once a recession eventually does yeah. hit, and your already deficits are already so large. You're right. It, it is an unsustainable. Uh, and we've been talking since the GFC about kicking this deficit can down the road. Um, you know, the debt ceiling's always brought up, and it's always. Yeah. You know, I think. When, for mine, trying to think, what's the next interest rate regime? What mm. yield structure are we looking at? Now, if you look at pre-GFC, using Aussie yields, you know, threes and tens were roughly between five and six percent, um, somewhat consistently. Then the GFC happened, and we sort of dropped to a, a two to three percent range, and then, or sorry, three to four percent range. Then we had post-European crisis, two to three percent range, leading into the, the pandemic. And said, okay, what's next? We hit zero effectively. Um, now, do we go back to the five, six range? Do we go to three, four? And I think three, four is the most likely, given you know, to your point about the debt, it's not just the US government that's levered, households, businesses, mm. governments around the world have spent billions and billions, trillions of dollars to support their own economies during a pre or a systemic shock of COVID. So the world can't afford five to six percent yields mm. um, as a proxy. So I think we will settle around these levels and how we get there is the unknown. Will we have, you know, the Fed could, you know, we'll just leave the, the, the balance sheet there for a while because it's it's in our interest as a government to have lower debt given we've got so much to fund. And you mentioned uh, owners equivalent rent in how they measure mm -hmm. shelter in the US, mm -hmm. which I think is a homeowner basically saying what they think their house would rent for if it was on I the rental so, market. Yeah. It seems a an odd way. Yeah, it seems an odd way. Certainly in the 70s mm -hmm. it was different and their inflation numbers were, I think it was just house prices in the 70s. Uh, a bit before my time. But. Yeah, a bit before my time. Anyway, <laughs> um, it's measured differently in Europe, yep. which could mean that their inflation actually comes down quicker than the US yeah. if they follow the US's path on the other inflation data points. Is that something you're following? And, and could that mean US actually cut Europe actually cuts rates mm -hmm. before Europe, which would be a non-consensus view at this stage. Yeah, I mean, I think Europe is sort of a, a blend of what we have here in the US in that they do, they don't, they look at land, for example, as an investment, so therefore it's, it's not factored in, whereas utilities for owning a house and the like are. Um, it, it's a plausible point, and I think if you look at Europe as well, with the conflict on the border and all the ramifications from that, that perhaps they do need to stimulate their economy more aggressively sooner. Um, but having said that, I think the ECB can be a little bit more stick in the mud vis-a-vis -vis policy mobility and, and may be inclined just to continue to stamp on inflation more aggressively. So it is, a, it is an unknown and it is one for, for, for further debate. But right here, right now, I wouldn't say I'd be on board the, the ECB going sooner than the Fed. Scott Rundell, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks, Chris.